Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters Podcast, focusing on what's important to the total Army community. We bring vital Army conversations and interviews on issues relevant to soldiers, military families, and all of you amazing Army supporters. Rotating each week, our show includes Soldier Today, Army Real Talk, Family Voices, and Thought Leaders. Let's tune into the show. I'm here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the end of the military mission to evacuate American citizens, third country nationals, and vulnerable Afghans. The last C-17 lifted off from Hamad Karzai International Airport on August 30th this afternoon at 3.29 p.m. East Coast time. And the last manned aircraft is now clearing the airspace above Afghanistan. We will soon release a photo of the last C-17 departing Afghanistan with Major General Chris Donahue and the U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan, Ross Wilson, aboard. Welcome to a special three-part edition of Army Matters. I'm Colonel Retired Scott Halstead, the Director of AUSA's Center of Leadership. And I'm Gina Cavallaro, Senior Staff Writer at Army Magazine. The voice in that soundbite is Marine General Kenneth McKenzie, the commander of U.S. Central Command, announcing the end of U.S. operations in Afghanistan after 20 years. And I'll never forget those images from those days, Scott. How about you? No, Gina, I was, I was glued to uh, social media and my TV uh, for those two weeks in, in August, like most of, you know, most of the Army and most of America uh, watching this unfold in, in real time. Well, Scott, you and I just came back from a trip to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. It was a quick trip. And uh, I, I wonder, how did it feel for you to be back at Fort Bragg? Because you're a almost lifelong All-American 82nd Airborne veteran. Gina, it's always good to go to Fort Bragg. Um, there's, a, there's an energy there that I don't think I've experienced anywhere else in the Army. And so from doing PT in the morning with paratroopers to, to sitting down with these men and women and hearing their stories... Uh, about Afghanistan. And, and some of them had done multiple tours in Afghanistan, so they have a unique perspective. And for many of them, it's their first time ever deploying. And so um, I think we learned the scope of the mission was much greater than we anticipated. And certainly the emotional uh, complexity of the mission was greater than, than we could have anticipated. But we heard it firsthand yeah, from those Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's hard to believe, you know, the mission seemed like when we were watching it on TV, it just seemed like it was more than two weeks, but it was only about two weeks that from the time they left Fort Bragg to the time they got back and, and completed that mission. And boy, did they get a lot done during that time. They did. And, and, and we actually learned more about the mission than I had previously read. Uh, so, for example, I mean, we now know that that, that coalition of, of soldiers and Marines um, with their interagency partners, they successfully evacuated and changed the lives of more than 124,000 American citizens, NATO allies, and of course, our, our vulnerable Afghan partners uh, in August of 2021. Amazing. What were some of the other units that were there? So we, we know about the two Marine Corps battalions, although they didn't work for General Donahue and Commander Pitt, but the, the US, all the U.S. Army units worked directly for the 82nd Airborne Division. And so that task force included um, Task Force 1194 Armor from the Minnesota Army National Guard. And that battalion was already forward deployed to Kuwait and got called mm-hmm. forward to Afghanistan uh, to help with the evacuation mission. Uh, the 23rd Military Police Company from Fort Drum, New York, was on the ground, as well as elements of the 3rd Brigade Combat Team, 10th Mountain Division from Fort Polk, Louisiana. And all of these Army units 
really augmented the people we talked to uh, who served with the 1st Brigade Combat Team, 82nd Airborne Division, located at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So at Fort Bragg, uh, it, I thought it was great. We, we got invited to go to their new recording studio uh, at, the, at division headquarters and sit down with General Donahue and Command Sergeant Major Pitt. Um, and then uh, we, over the course of the day, we also spoke with the other paratroopers. So General Donahue graduated from West Point in 1992. You graduated from West Point, too. But not that year. What, what year did you graduate? Um, 1991. 91, okay. Well, he certainly has had a busy 29 years since then, much of which has been in the special operations community. He's got tons of deployments to the Middle East, North Africa, and Eastern Europe. And I can only imagine how dangerous some of those missions must have been, but, but those missions are just generally not known to the public. So the mission to close out operations in Afghanistan may have been the highest profile one he's led. And in fact, he's that guy in the famous, now famous photo of the last the last U.S. soldier in Afghanistan, the green photo we've all seen all over the place. So, so when we sat down with uh, General Donahue and Command Sergeant Major Pitt, we started our conversation by asking General Donahue how that very public operation fits in with his career as a quiet professional. Let's have a listen. So I guess what I want to know is this mission to close out operations in Afghanistan may have been the most high-profile mission you've ever done. How does that fit into your career, and how did that help you see the battlefield differently or the field of operations differently? Um, it, without a doubt, many of the other things you've talked about, we've done a lot of pretty uh, unique things. I've been very fortunate to be part of it, but this was, without a doubt, the most public. Uh, in fact, um, whenever we got out of Afghanistan, I texted my wife and said, hey, I just want you to know we're out. And she wrote back and said, I know. I know. And then she <laughs> texted me the picture, right? Which I'm not, you know, anyone who knows me knows I wish that picture wasn't out there. Well, how, do you, how do you feel about that picture? It is a famous picture. It's iconic. Um, I think, you know, so I was one of the first people into Afghanistan. Then I was the NATO Special Operations Component Commander whenever we started to go through the, the process of getting an agreement with the Taliban, with General Miller. So... You know, I knew intimately how we wanted the, the war to end. Um, and as I always remind people, starting wars are easy. Everyone in the military knows this. Ending wars are hard, right? That's the hard part. So whenever you say what was going through your mind from day one, you know, and we can go through the myriad of tasks we had to do and then had to come back to the, the first thing is, um, I really want to highlight is one, General McKenzie was a great boss, gave crystal clear guidance. Uh, the rest of the team that we were with out there at HKIA, Pete Baisley, Brigadier General Sullivan, everyone who you mentioned, absolutely great people. Um, you know, the Brigadier General Sullivan and his team worked for Admiral Baisley. Uh, he was a great, great teammate. Um, the State Department, other agency folks, you know, I can go on and on. Just we were very, very fortunate, part of a great team. That's the first thing. Uh, the next thing, though, as soon as we landed on the ground, we kept everything with the end in mind. What did we want everything to look like whenever we departed Afghanistan? And that drove everything that we did. And I think probably the first 96 hours were the most important 96 hours for us to accomplish what ultimately 
you know, General McKenzie tasked us to do. So as soon as we landed, the first thing we did is we went and linked in with Admiral Pete Baisley, who we were in support of. Um, and then also the Marines that were working directly for Pete. So we went out and we visited all of the uh, gates that were open at the time. And then we went around and most importantly, we went out and looked at the perimeter. And the thing that jumped out at me about the perimeter was is that the Taliban were really inside the perimeter. Inside so the airfield? They were inside, inside. The, the airfield initially. And that's whenever we said, okay, we've got to push the Taliban outside of the airhead immediately. And I went back and spoke to uh, both Admiral Vaisley and then also uh, to the CENTCOM commander and said, hey, we're going to push the Taliban out. So that really led to, uh, we went out and as an example, we went into the uh, international airport. The actual, the like in the terminal? In the terminal. And there were Taliban in there. There were Taliban on the roof. So we initially got together. We, we physically removed them from the terminal. Um, and then we actually met with the Taliban. This was the first coordination that we had to do with the Taliban, at least from our, from the 82nd perspective. And it was, hey, number one, we have to establish this perimeter. And we're going to establish the perimeter. There are no options. And we did that. They understood why, and they we pushed them outside of the, the airfield itself. And the second is we had to depressurize the gates, um, just because they were so overflowing. And that led into many, many other conversations. Other people were part of that, not just us. But that was sort of that very first snapshot of the two things we knew we had to do. And then uh, we met with all the you know allies, partners, everyone else. And we came up with what we knew the key tasks were that we had to do. We just had to conduct day-in and day-out operations. Um, we had to control access to the airfield. Um, we had to retrograde all the coalition uh, personnel and other interagency uh, you know, partners as well from the U.S. and other nations. Um, we had to demilitarize all the equipment that was out there. And then we had to plan and execute the joint tactical expo. So that time period where you're the most vulnerable whenever you're finally, you know, departing the country. And then we'd be, there's a number of other be prepared tasks that we had to do. Very quickly, you realize, well, there's a lot to do here. And then you have to execute everything as well. Um, so that was the first thing that sat down. And then we very quickly worked out all of this with uh, Admiral Baisley. Um, as you know, he's trying to run just the current operations at the gates with uh, Brigadier General Sullivan. Okay. It, it, was it as chaotic as it looked from our seat back here in the States, people on the tarmac, or was that already settled by the time you got there? I mean, it didn't ever look settled, but like you said, you had to depressurize the gates uh, and, and get people to be more orderly out there. Was it as it looked to us back home? Um, I mean, it, it definitely got much more ordered, I can tell you that. Um, again, as we were there and the coordination across the board and people were able to sort of settle out um, and create that kind of order out of chaos through battle rhythm, all the normal stuff you hear about that, you know, all those things work. The you stuff know? you train for. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and that is what I think led to ultimate success was, was all of that. Um, but yes, it, it definitely did become ordered, very ordered, in fact, whether it was the multiple daily touch points. Um, with all the partners that were there on the airfield, allies, partners, interagency, 
um, and then also with the Taliban themselves. Were you able um, to, and then when you finally arrived, uh, Sergeant Major Pitt, were either of you able to take some time to interact with your soldiers who were on the perimeter, and how were they doing? Did they have questions for you? Well, I don't think I spent a lot of time in the talk. I think I, I was, I mean, Tat, you know, the boss asked me to just be out there, you know, seeing soldiers. So my daily battle rhythm was after the update, go stay on the perimeter, talk to soldiers, talk to the paratroopers. I think um, they had questions, of course, um, you know, simple questions. Um, what do we do if this happens? You know, following their leadership and then, um just to ensure that I think every paratrooper there, whether it was the private or the lieutenant or the commander, every echelon wanted to ensure that they got, you know, every American civilian as possible. So those were the questions they were asking, like, okay, can we take this person, you know, and oh, when okay. in and the when in doubt, for when in doubt, Afghans right, asking, oh. and when in doubt, they took them. Like they wasn't like, well, we're not. No, when in doubt, we probably said yes. One we said no. Interesting. And the, the other key thing, too, I guess the first thing is battlefield circulation was absolutely the most important thing for both of us. And we spent as much time as humanly possible at interacting with our paratroopers, Minnesota National Guard, and 10th Mountain. Um, I mean, there's an MP company from Fort Drum out of 16th MP. Literally, they came off the plane and we said, Go to the gate. You're the reserve. Go to the gate. <laughs> well, well, we said, You're the reserve. And they became their reserve, and we said, now, rehearse going to all these various gates. And they rehearsed that action. And they performed unbelievable, just like all the other soldiers, sailors, and Marines that were out there. But, um, I mean, there's all these, as you know, you bring up these comments to us. I mean, it's unbelievable how well these folks did. Um, but I, I can tell you, whether it's for battlefield circulation, I mean, that was absolutely the most critical portion of what we did because that allowed us to, one, things were happening so fast and it was changing so quickly that if you didn't have that constant movement and have that ability to communicate and also, most importantly, understand what they're going through so that we can actually make, you know, from what ultimately the CENTCOM commander needed to get accomplished for the mission all the way down to what reality was, aligning that guidance, that was hugely important. Join AUSA, the Army's premier professional association and host of the largest land power exposition in the United States. AUSA is open to everyone, including all ranks and components. So whether you have a relationship with the U.S. Army or simply want to honor those who serve, you can learn more at www.ausa.org join. So Sergeant Major, my assumption is the majority of your young paratroopers and leaders had never deployed before. Um, is that a fair assumption or not? No, that, no, that's not an assumption. I remember this is the brigade that got deployed early okay. that year. It wasn't, um, they had experience, okay. but of course, every deployment's a new experience. You can't rely on what you learned or actually did in the past. You have to be prepared to be flexible. So the, the experience was there, especially amongst the sergeant first class and above and captain above that experience was there well i wonder you know on that question did those soldiers the paratroopers even though they had deployed i know they were in afghanistan the, over the past two years at some point right uh did did they have a sense of the history of of this mission did everybody have a sense of the history of this mission 
So I, I mean the historical nature of well, it. Well, when I know. I would say you know before I hand off to the general, I'll just say this: you had um, sergeant majors, first sergeants there that served there as privates. So it was not lost on any of those leaders the historic nature of it. They they were there as privates. Now they're closing out this mission as battalion sergeant majors in the or you know being the last people to close it out. So that, I think in some ways that's, you know, I don't want to say gratifying, but it's, it's very emotional to them and very real to them. I was wondering about the emotion of it. There must've been some tears. No, I think, I think everybody was, uh, from the soldier's perspective, especially the ones that have been there multiple times, I think being able to see something through Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. at the end and not be on the sidelines, but actually see it through that that did mean a lot to them. Um, you know, that meant a lot to them. And, and I think also the just the importance in the, you know, CSM Pitt talked about getting as many people out. Um, I don't think people understand the drive, the demand, and how everyone was trying everything they could to get every Afghan, every U.S. citizen out. And I purposely kind of say that because the U.S. citizens were easy to get out, okay? If they showed up, the Taliban wanted them out. It was in their interest, by the way, to get them out as well. It was getting all the other Afghans out as well. You know, obviously... So help us, yeah, help us understand what, what that was like. I mean, we, we saw the images, but we weren't there. We couldn't smell so, it and feel it like you did. You know, one of the things I just want to make sure that we talk about as well is because, yes, we were pulling people through the gates, but ultimately... The State Department was the folks that screened everybody to come back. And, and I only say that because that's an incredible burden to put on people, right? You're, you're now determining whether or not someone gets to leave Afghanistan or not. So it wasn't just the... We, we pulled people through. State Department individuals, human beings, were the ones who ultimately voted up or down on whether or not they could come out. Um, I think that's sometimes lost on people a little bit, too, of what all they did specifically to help get people out. So, and I have a great story. So, you know, we're at the Southgate, the terminal, and we talk about, um, you know, the care of the paratroopers. And, you know, I was out there with the battalion Sergeant Major, and one of the NCOs came up and said, you know, Sergeant Major, there's a, there's a family over there. Um, but it was very chaotic. So every time you tried to get some person 50 people would rush you. And so we went over there, um, family about eight from Seattle, of all places, right? And the, the young boy spoke perfect English. And so I called him across the wire and I said, show me your documentation. But we couldn't take them all at once. So what I told the Sergeant Major would do was every 10 minutes, go get another one of their family members and we sat them over. And they did that. And it, when we got that, everybody over, we moved them inside and you know, got them on to their destinations. But those are the kind of stories that all the paratroopers, all the Marines at every gate were doing. They they weren't just, you know, they were invested in ensuring that everybody that they could get, they got regardless. And, you know, they they went and got them. They didn't just say no. They they went and got them. And, and all under the constant pressure of ISIS, suicide vest threat, so there were, there, were, there, were, there were multiple threats during this whole time? I mean, how did you work through that? And, and that was the, probably the, the part that we balanced, I think. Um, on any given time period, there's somewhere between 50 and 60 
ongoing ISIS threats against the airfield. Um, and, and the intel community across the board was going everything they could to get us that information, not just the A2nd, everybody, right? And uh, so you're constantly balancing that threat that was out there. Um, everybody knew it was out there. Um, and, and those paratroopers and other soldiers and Marines that were out, that was why we were out there battlefield circulating, walking amongst all these kids, trying to keep a good feel for what was truly possible and what was not. And, you know, ISIS, you know, we can't say too much in this form, but they were throwing the kitchen sink at us, right, up until the very end. Um, and that was the part that you were constantly balancing, right, of protection of clearly your soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and then also the citizens of you know, you're trying to pull through American, other nations, and then just other Afghans we were trying to pull through. And then, you know, dealing with the actual ISIS targeting. Like that was all that was occurring simultaneously. And then oh by the way, again, you're planning for getting everybody out. Um, you're running in an airfield. You're you're doing all the normal things. And there's a deadline. And the whole time demailing equipment and feeding paratroopers and wow. As days got longer and the base got smaller, you know, resources got shorter. So, you know, our cooks were, you know, where they had defects that were run by contractors. Now it was just U.S., you know, military cooks and they're cooking for a whole everybody and getting food out to the farthest point. I mean, I mean if you would see these synchronization matrices that we had to do, it was beautiful. Contract fuel. You have security forces that okay. As remember, as as you, these security forces are leaving, getting closer to the deadline, you're now picking up more of the airhead, which now impacts how you're going to do your joint tactical exploit. So, so you're constantly balancing all this with the threat, and oh by the way, you're still having aircraft flowing. And it sounds like the whole twenty years just came down to a small version of of what a lot of people went through all through their deployments over there. Where were they doing the cooking and where, uh, you know, how did that happen? So they had heart structures. Um, again, it was a full operational base, but, you know, as the days got shorter, the contractors were leaving before us. So, you know, those U.S. soldiers, sailors, Marines, the Air Force, we're, we're actually supposed to stay there, you know, was getting all the contractors on the aircraft and getting them out. So as they left, you know, think about, you know, it was a city, so who's running the sewage plant? Who's running the trash pickup? You know, because trash is still being made. So all these things fell back to the paratroopers and the Marines and, you know, disciplined soldiers, disciplined Marines do disciplined things. And so, and then you just, you know, we always joke about you never know who you have in your formation, what they did in their previous life. And so, and you can go anywhere and say, hey, who knows how to do this? And somebody go, well, I did that before I came in the Army. And then they're on there fixing, you know, runway lights or they're doing these amazing things outside the scope of being an intel person or being a chaplain assistant or Changing whatever. Changing a C-17 wheel. <laughs> <laughs> who knew how to do it? that? Yeah. The paratroopers yeah. did it? <laughs> um, I mean, you can go on and on with all the amazing things that the young kids did. Now, Sort of a, a funnier thing, too, is the State Department, when they left, their portion, they left all their number of, like, high-quality food was there. <laughs> so oh, certain portions right. of 1st Brigade, uh, you know, we, oh, we yeah, were eating right. at the division headquarters, oh, we were eating MREs. Okay, we, were up, we were up with everyone else, right? So we were out, battlefield circulating. I'm like, well, how are you guys eating steak, steak and lobster? <laughs> well, that, the, they so, were so sexy. 
It's like, this stuff is all going to go to waste. Uh, we better eat get it. it. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Send this stuff out. I mean, they were had makeshift stuff out there, cooking steaks, chopping them up out there, you know, at the most furthest away points. But that's what, you know, ingenuity does when, you know, when you don't have anything so else. These, these details are remarkable, and it's really great to hear the stories. Um, before you left Fort Bragg, I mean, when, when you got the mission and you were getting ready to go, um, obviously, you two knew a lot more before the troops found out and uh, the plans were coming together. Were you able to get everybody together in a sort of, a, I'm thinking of like a general assembly of some kind where you were able to, to say, this is what we're going to do, you know, be strong, this is the mission. Were you able to even yourselves anticipate pulling people through the gate one by one? Did that come into play? Well, I say get together. I think every day you hear the boss say, be ready, be ready. So getting everybody together, that's every day for PT. That's every day we walk by a paratrooper, be ready. Be ready, not get ready, be ready, especially if you're on IRF, right? And so I think from that standpoint, it, we knew it was going to happen. I think I left the office and drove around First Brigade and watched everybody's phones go off as the alerts came. And they all looked at me and they said, is this real, Sergeant Major? And I was like, <laughs> oh my goodness. are you ready? Let's yeah. go. You know, let's go. And so from that standpoint. I think cu culture and process, guys. <laughs> okay. I'm just telling you right now, <laughs> the operational readiness cycle and our culture. We have a document. You were we ready. Are. I'm just telling you, that, that is what made it so that we could handle anything now or in the future that came down the pike. Anything that comes down. Um, but but was there anticipation of, of that personal nature of this mission of getting these people that you've known for, you know, during your deployments over there? And, you know, it, it must have been heart-wrenching in many ways to make a plan to pull one family member through every 10 minutes, uh, such as the family in your in your story. Oh. And that's an intimate mission there. I think that, you know, paratroopers, they're American citizens, right? They're people from all over the country. And so, you know, a mission like that, you know, it's, an, it's important to them. They, you, you get there and you see the desperation on people's faces, right? And the paratroopers, you know, that's one of those times I think you look out there and you understand the privileges you have as an American and then you do everything in your power. They do everything in their power to ensure that someone else is afforded that opportunity. So they rose to to the mission, the, the, hu the human part of the mission. Absolutely. If you look at all those things that we were talking about, right? I mean, Scott, you've done a lot of these things, but imagine doing a full force rehearsal for, I mean, go back to your Ranger days, an airfield exfil. From a air, you know, think, think of an airfield seizure, and you are now in contact with all this, with thousands of people at the gates, ISIS, this group that has come together, and you now have to do the departure from an airfield seizure. That's the joint tactical expo, and now you have to rehearse it. I mean, think think about while you're on the line. So when you think through all the various things that we were doing, just the rehearsal of not leaving the last little over eight hundred people that were in that final expo. I mean, just, just take that task alone while doing everything else. I didn't even mention all the other stuff that we talked about. Well, gentlemen, that's, we talked about this before we went on the air, just how proud our country is of your paratroopers and your, your leaders at Echelon. But I think it speaks to the discipline of your individual paratroopers, the discipline of your leaders. This just doesn't happen because All-American 6 and All-American 9 show up. This is going to happen 
it should be happening whether they're there or not. And you get to go there and reinforce the importance of the mission, kind of provide context. But this is the beauty of your organization, that your culture is, I understand the intent of my boss a couple levels up, and we're going to get this mission done, and we're not going to leave any Americans behind. That is, that's why America is so excited to hear your story, because we sat there in awe in the month of August and watched you all do things that we just could only imagine. And, and the other thing, too, all the time we say majors fight this division. Every single thing, every one of those huge tasks that I talked about, that's majors planning that operation and then us making sure that it gets done to the standard that you just described. I mean, individual paratroopers and majors are what made this happen. Yeah, so I think um, you go back to discipline, and uh, I, I tell everybody that will listen, um, the discipline of the paratroopers, I was just in awe of it. You know you want them to have it, you want them to do it, you instill it in them, and then the time comes and when they execute it. Um, and then to see every night, like, you know, we'd be on Battlefield, sir, and it'd be 1 o'clock in the morning, and, you know, 10 people hop the gate, and nobody got shot. You know, they were just right. Afghans trying to get away. But... You know, to the undiscerned eye, to the undisciplined person, that could be a threat. And even as, you know, we were exfilling people jumping the gate, nobody got shot. It wasn't that the, the danger wasn't there for the paratroopers, but that's where I think I'm, like, mostly very proud of the discipline of every individual one. So, paratroopers. And you put that in the perspective of the threat. Everyone who came through, you had to assume that they were wearing a suicide vest. And okay. the paratroopers knew this. I mean, they, they were aware of the threats Ab as absolutely. much as you were. Okay. We were. As soon as we would get the uh, intelligence, it would get broadcast out across our networks to everybody. Okay. And if the intel came in via the Marines, they would get it out to us. It came in through us. We would get it out. It came in through Admiral Baisley's headquarters. Everybody, when it came to the threat, everybody was tracking the threat across the, the entire task force. I mean, that was, the intel community rose up. I can tell you that, and did everything they could to make sure we were aware of everything. And everybody was communicating. Uh, how were you communicating? Radios. Uh, you know, a lot of time, you know, it's funny, you know, we you know these training exercises, and he says, if you go to visit somebody, you should either be bringing something or bringing something back. And so every time we left, you know, every time we left to do Battlefield Cert, we would have the most updated intel. And, like, this is a time when you go up to that, literally that, fighting position and say, what's the latest thing you heard? Okay, here's the update, right? And so, again, that's, you know, from radios to face-to-face -to -face with commanders and sergeant majors and first sergeants and company commanders. Every means possible. Every means possible. Constant. Because the situation yeah. was so fluid. I mean, the yeah. threats were constantly changing and, and updating. You had to be out doing that all the time. I mean... I won't get into what our personal battle rhythm was, but I just tell you that we spent as much time as humanly possible out and amongst that perimeter. Yeah, so I mean, in the 82nd, we were, you know, our motto was going to be flat, fast, accurate, and lethal. Um, so flat means everybody who's supposed to know knows it. Fast means that you're communicating and you understand your environment so much that you're actually anticipating what's going to happen. It's not just that I can communicate to you fast. It's just that we've kept people so well informed that they can think fast. They can act fast. They can anticipate what's going to happen. Accurate. That's everything that I tell each other. We know that if Donahue shows up, he's going to tell me that to the best of his ability what he knows and understands. He won't BS it and that he's trustworthy. 
Okay, and that doesn't matter if it's up to CENTCOM, down to a subordinate, to, to Brigadier General Sullivan and his team, to Admiral Baisley, the guy that ultimately we were working for. That, that's about trust, that accuracy. And then lethal, whatever we're supposed to get accomplished, we get accomplished. That's what flat, fast, accurate, and lethal is to this division. And I think that that played out in spades out there. Is there anything that, you know, I, I know there were a lot of threats that you were receiving. Were there any, any other concerns that weighed on you um, as the deadline approached? I mean, having that deadline must have just been a little bit of pressure, I would imagine. Uh, yeah. Anything you would have done differently? Uh, um, if, if you know, if you've had time to reflect on anything, you would have done differently. So I, I think two things. One to that is we we constantly communicated. This is what the end looks like. We always, you know, our constant motto is here: we keep the end in mind. Okay, what does HKI need to look like when we've all departed? Okay, and part of that was is what were we setting up that would allow people to still leave the country. And I think that's the one thing that, um, one, whether it's the, you know, D-Mill, all the equipment that was there, um, you know, I don't want to get into too much sensitive stuff, but to make sure that we left nothing back that was there that uh, the Taliban or anybody else could use. We were actually very successful with that. But the other one was, is what are we leaving in place so that we can build upon it? Whoever is in charge in Afghanistan, doesn't matter who it is, what are we building upon so that we can have that? But most importantly, how can our citizens continue to depart the country? So bringing in Qatar, so that, you know, reopening the international terminal, getting all the agreement. It was bigger than just the 82nd with some of the agreement portion of it with the Taliban. But that was, we were constantly telling people, okay, and then what? And then what? To make sure that that was accomplished, which I think the other agencies and everyone else did it. Ultimately, I know this, we get into a little bit of political space here. I don't do politics, but we knew we had to make sure the mechanism was in place to continue to get people out. Yeah, I can imagine that would have been um, a constant uh, communication with them on those types of things. Was there anything there that you were unable to accomplish that you think about now and said, I might have done that differently? And only, again, only at where it's operationally feasible to talk about. So. Um. Unable to get done. I don't know. I, I would just say that as you got closer to the end, the boss always said, keep the end in mind. Uh, you realize that, you know, you don't have that minute that you lost a minute ago, right? And so when you, you know, when paratroopers and leaders and Marines are executing things, you don't have time to go back and do it again, like because you have a, you know, there's no more minutes in that day. There's no more minutes on the clock come the the end of it. And so everything was done calculated. Everything was done, you know, with a purpose. Every person moving on that NH had a purpose and they stuck to it and they did it because everybody understood that there were no more minutes. So if you had to get it done, you saw it through. Um, it's one of the times where you didn't, you know, you went and checked, but when you checked, it was done because that was the message. There's no more minutes. Like, you know, even in the last 24 hours, it was like, it's 24 hours. It's not 24 hours plus whatever. It's, this is it. And so the things that needed to get done got done. So how, how, how did you actually wrap up? Did people leave in waves? And, you know, back to that iconic photo, were you in fact the last guy out? 
General Donahue? Uh, we've been asked that several times. Yes, in fact, uh, that's the way it did I mean, come out. Did that, really, that was not staged. Um, no. No, 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 it was not. You've painted a great picture of, of how it was when you got there and all the things you did while you were there. How did that last step take, that last minute, how was that last minute spent? The same way the first minute was spent, I would think, and which is being vigil, making sure we accounted for everybody making sure that we across the T's and dot the I's and, you know, the boss checking with each one of the commanders to ensure that we had everybody. So, I, which is the same thing we did when we got off the plane was we spent it the last minute doing the same thing we did the first minute. Making sure that we had, were taking care of our people. And that meant, especially the threat. I mean, I, I won't get into all the assets and everything that we had. And as we're trying to communicate and make sure that we're protecting those last five aircraft, um, getting them all lined up, and then jumping on our last aircraft and heading out. So I think that 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 was the focus at the end. Again, keeping it G-rated for this, but uh, <laughs> you were very Understood. focused. But but I will tell you, um, if I ever thought that's how I was going to leave Afghanistan, probably was the way I thought I was going to leave Afghanistan. Did you have a vision for how you were going to leave Afghanistan? That, um, that you want to share? No. No? I, I do, but I'm not <laughs> But you're not going to share it. Well, <laughs> um, well because it, well, get, I, it, it gets into politics. I, I, <laughs> you know, when I. End, ending of a war is not always. We don't determine how the war ends, right? You mean soldiers don't yeah. determine, soldiers don't determine okay. how a war ends, okay. right? I just remember sitting on the, the ramp and uh, looking over at the boss, and then just. I think it just. I just reflected on. Hispanic, the life of a paratrooper. Like, uh, to me, that it personally it was just like, wow. Like, to be, to have spent my whole career in the 82nd and to read about all these things from, you know, Normandy to Besson and then to this, it was just, to just be a part of it, I would, I couldn't have thought of a better place to be for, for a paratrooper that has been paratrooping so long. It just was like, wow. Like, I just looked at, looked over the boss and I was like, man, someday this is going to be really important. Like, and then you just look at the the paratroopers. You felt the weight of, the weight of it. Yeah, you just look at the paratroopers, was, yeah. you know, on the aircraft with you, and you're just extremely mm -hmm. proud of them. You're like, mm -hmm. and you, you you know, you're just extremely proud of them. So you're like, man, wow, they they did something really big. I, I think the enormity of you know 124,000 people out over a very short amount of time. One, it speaks to not just the 82nd, but one, everybody was out there, but also the United States Air Force and what they were able to, to take out of it. That's incredible, right? But I think just the sheer sense of, of pride of what everybody did and accomplished. Like, just kind of leave the politics of the Afghan war out, but just what they accomplished, you know, always being incredible, so incredibly proud and thankful of what each of those paratroopers and a member of that task force Well, I'd like to just take take you back, um, if I could, to what uh, Sergeant Major Pitt said about, you know, some of the senior NCOs were there as BFCs, which really, you know, made an impact on me when you said that. I realized, wow. It's a long time. You know, the whole world watched the, the withdrawal. Um, but, you know, after and while that was taking place and after it happened, uh, Army uh, Chief of Staff General McConville sent a message to the force that asked soldiers, in part, to check on teammates 
and former soldiers who, who, and I quote, may be struggling with the unfolding events. So General Donahue, you were there for the withdrawal, but you were also there over the years and had formed your own relationships with the Afghans, uh, I'm sure. How have you weathered your own feelings about it and um, helped others work through what could feel like moral injury? Yeah, the, uh, so it was sort of a bookend, one of the first people into Afghanistan, and then obviously one of the last out. Um, so the first thing is, is, you know, we went there for one, well, really for two reasons. One, to hold people accountable for attacking our nation. Uh, and two, to make sure that no attacks came out. So during that time period, what we as you know soldiers and leaders could could do, I think we we did that. Especially when you look at kind of our generation, you know, Scott, this generation here that were you know first time there as captains. So the, if you look at how we bore the brunt of the cost of this, um, I, I'm just incredibly amazed and thankful for what all the great teammates I've had in the past and the guys we've, you know, for me guys that, uh, that we lost absolutely amazing what they did. And, uh, I think I'll, it's always be incredibly proud of what they did. Okay. And what they did for each other. Whenever you think about what a soldier does, that's really it. Okay. Um, I'll let other people evaluate all that other stuff at a later time, right? That's not my, I'm, I'm a tactical, everything I've did in Afghanistan has been tactical. Um, and I, I just think that I'll always be immensely proud and unbelievably thankful for what, what they all did. But to go back to, are there people that are hurting? No, I'm sure there are, okay? And, and we gotta reach out and, and talk to them. We gotta be willing to talk about our experiences. Um, and you know, as far as the Afghan partners go, I'm, I'm talking to them constantly right now. Um, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come back some other day and talk about the lessons learned out of Afghanistan and other places. I think they're very important, and uh, but not for this podcast. Okay. What I would say is that, you know, here we have, um, when I, you know, the Alliance efforts uh, live in the legacy. And so what I would say to, you know, any paratrooper struggling with the last 20 years and losing friends and did we accomplish our mission you know who has a great perspective on this the vietnam generation and they're still around and so i would encourage a lot of paratroopers you know anybody in the military that thinks they're you know that feels they're struggling with it to talk to vietnam veterans because they're probably the closest that if you were going to relate an ending maybe that would be able to tell you you know to how they the question what it was all for right. and things like right. that yeah. right but you know what i would tell the paratroopers though is that you know be extremely proud of the service you know talking to the, some of the first sergeants and sergeant majors those pfcs that you know got off the plane in hki or wherever in Bagram, you know as a young private you know specialist or whatever have you and now to close it out like you saw it you saw it through to the end, right? And you should be proud of that. And you should be proud of that. So I think um, the first thing is, is the first appointment I know of that we made everybody go through behavioral health screening. And uh, the chaplain actually has a program where all of our chaplains, everybody's fully engaged. And we actually have set up a number of programs just for people to 
to go through and just talk about their experiences because it was very unique. It was very different. Um, I think we have over 60 some paratroopers that are actually going through the process to adopt uh, Afghan children. So there's a lot of, I'm one of those people who believe that um, combat can actually make you better. It can make you a better human being. How's that? Um, just when you go through and you experience everything that you experience, I think you just, you, you see things a little bit differently. And, and I think it, it can make you a much better person. doesn't mean you don't have, don't get me wrong, we all got our issues. I'm not acting like we don't. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that doesn't, you know, there's certain things I'm sure my family wishes I did a little bit differently, right? But um, I, I do think that it can, it can make you have the ability just to self-reflect and make yourself better as well. I would think the, just remember, I think it started with the perspective of the paratrooper. Um, how many lives did they change, right? We got a lot of Americans out. And we got a lot of Afghan civilians out. How many lives did they change? I try to ask them that. How many Americans did you just make? Because we made a lot. And those little kids that got off, you know, they, they, that got handed over the gates, those families that had nowhere to go that we were able to get out, made a lot of Americans in the future. Um, time will tell, but I, I would think it's a safe bet that we probably made a lot of great Americans. People don't forget that. And again, if you want to look for the historical context, go back to the people we brought out of Vietnam. They're probably all functioning Americans right now that took advantage of a opportunity, became part of this great country. So if I'm betting on the people that we took out, I'm going to say 50 years from now, they're going to be great Americans. 124,000 people have an opportunity that they yeah. before. Are either of you adopting any children? No. <laughs> I have five children. We adopted three of the five. I can't right. handle what I got. Okay, we'll just leave it at that then. Um, well, General Donahue, uh, Command Sergeant Major Pitt, it has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us and taking the time from what must be a very busy schedule to spend some time with our listeners. And we hope you will come back and join us for another conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for part one of this podcast series. In part two of this special edition of Army Matters, Gina and I interviewed Captain Kyle Hawks and Sergeant First Class Jeremy Brown from the 2nd Battalion, 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment. That interview will be posted on ausa.org slash podcasts on December 8th. We will post our third and final interview with paratroopers from the 82nd Airborne Division on December 15th. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army the U.S. Army's Professional Association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. Have a great Army day. Hua.